we've been talking a lot about the Holy Spirit. Can't say enough. Praise the Lord. And one way Holy Spirit continues to reveal Jesus to us is that over the centuries, more and more light has come from the Word of God and has been revealed to us. It's been very progressive what the Holy Spirit has done since the first century. We have to take note of that. He gives us revelation upon revelation that we build upon from century to century as He reveals the Word to us. But especially since 1901, there's been an amazing Pentecostal outpouring. So we're on a fairly long series here that we've been doing on Sundays uh, called the Numa, which is the Holy Spirit's activity and the Holy Spirit as a person. And we've been following up on Wednesday nights on topics related to that as well. So with all that in mind, I wanted to do an overview tonight on the history of Pentecostalism in this past century and where we're at today. I don't want this to be a boring uh, history lesson. I hope it's not. But it's something we should draw from and learn from. Um, why we would do an evening like this, uh, many people hearing this may not have known about the background of how Holy Spirit has poured himself out on this earth in the past hundred plus years, which has brought us to our day today. There is a history behind it that's important that we can learn from. Uh, what is that saying? If we don't read our history, we're destined to relive it or something to that effect? Whatever. <clears throat> we have to learn from where we have come from, the mistakes made, <clears throat> and what we have learned from those that have gone before us. Truly, we do stand on the shoulders of giants. There are people in the Christian uh, body of Christ over the centuries that we are at today because of what they have sown, their very lives, into the Lord's church, and their fruit still remains to this very day. And that's an amazing thing. And uh, this is no different. Uh, so if Holy Spirit is moving on the earth today, I want to know what He's done, and I want to know what He's still doing. Uh, His movements are more important to me than any other current events that I could read in men's eyes. So let's pray. Father God, we thank you for Holy Spirit, for what He has been doing in our midst, in the days past, in the days we live in, truly in the days to come. We thank you, Father God, that we may learn well from those who have gone before us, Father. Uh, take the uh, fervor and the uh, devotion they had to Holy Spirit in their day, and that it would not be in vain that we could learn from it for our day and how we could be trained by those who have gone before us. So, that, well, Holy Spirit, we just thank you that you would bring us a personal uh, revelation tonight on what this all means to us personally as we look backwards to what has already been done, that we can work and walk with it today. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. So on this topic, this can be a very big topic. When we had our ministry school years ago, I did uh, four one-hour classes on this. So this is a big topic that I can't do four hours tonight. So, uh, but I do want to hopefully do a good introduction to it in the time that we do have together. Um, in Daniel chapter 12, verse 4, I've mentioned that quite a bit in the last few months. It tells us that knowledge will increase in the end times. And in the 20th century, We've seen an amazing outpouring of knowledge increasing as never before. As I had said, my grandfather was born in 1893. He passed away uh, just before uh, 1990. And in his lifetime, they started with horses and men walked on the moon. In one lifetime, that's incredible. To have personal computers, not that he had one, in one lifetime? That is unbelievable. That is a perfect example of knowledge just in the natural being poured out as never before. I mean, my gosh, at the end of World War II, you had basic rocket technology and they were walking on the moon 25 years later. What? That's just incredible. Uh, so, uh, you know, as I had mentioned this all before in September, on Wednesday nights that I did on, on the End Time series. So, but I also said this is not just an increase in natural knowledge, as we've seen in the 20th century, but Holy Spirit has been revealing more and more of God's Word to us in the prophetic plan that God has had in these last days. So let's start with that in Acts chapter 2. 
we have here a parallel to Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 32 in the Old Testament. So in Acts chapter 2 here, it tells us in verse 1, when the day of Pentecost had come, now that's a Jewish feast day, they were all gathered in one place. And suddenly a noise, like a violent rushing wind, came from heaven. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And tongues that looked like fire appeared on them, distri uh, distributing them, and a tongue rested on each one of them. Now, let's stop there for a second. That's a fascinating statement that's being read here, because you have to ask the question, is this literal? And was there literally fire on top of their heads? Is it just symbolic of the Holy Spirit? Or is it an open vision that's being seen? We really don't know. It doesn't tell us. No one who witnesses this says anything. Nobody says anything. It's just a fascinating thought. What could this have been like? So it goes on in verse 4, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with different tongues as the Holy Spirit was giving them the ability to speak out. And when this sound occurred, a crowd came together and they were bewildered. So obviously they heard something, the people around the area, because each one of them was hearing them in his own language. And they were all continued in amazement with great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, in verse 13, were jeering and saying, oh, they're full of sweet wine. In other words, they're drunk. Now, wait a second here. Let's stop for a second. If you heard someone speaking in a foreign language, would you conclude they're drunk? No, I wouldn't. They were, they were accused of being drunk because they acted drunk. They were probably staggering around, going like this, and acting drunk, and babbling, and the people would be saying like, huh, look at those drunks babble. But when the Spirit of God comes in the spirit realm and has contact with the natural realm, something is going to give, and ain't it going to be the spirit realm that's going to give? There's going to be a giving away in the natural realm because the greater, the greater power has come, and there's going to be a giving away, a submission. So, now that doesn't mean, you know, when people speak in tongues, they have to act this way. Of course not. A lot of people, I think, are in the flesh when they act like that. But there certainly have been many, many times in Christian history where this exactly has repeated itself, where people had the inability to communicate and looked like they were drunk in the way the Holy Spirit hit them so hard uh, with just a suspending of their natural senses. Wild. Verse 14. But Peter, uh, taking his stand with the other eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judah, and all of you who live in Jerusalem, know this and pay attention to my words. i got to remember here now, Peter is going to give what we call a sermon. This had to come to him supernaturally. He didn't prepare for this. Oh, look, let me get my notes out here. All right, here's what I should say. I prepared this last week. No, you didn't. This is spontaneous download from heaven filling him that he's speaking out. And he said, in verse um, 15, he goes on to say, For these people are not drunk, as you assume. It is only the third hour of the day. That means 9 o'clock a.m. in Jewish time. Obviously, even though the bars open early, it's not 9 a.m. that people get drunk. You know, they got a real problem. All right. So verse 16, But this is what has been spoken through the prophet Joel. Okay, now he's going to quote Joel chapter 2. Verse 17, and it shall be in the last days, God said, I will pour out my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and daughters will prophesy. I like that. And your young men will see visions, and your old men will have dreams, and even on my male and female servants. That's an interesting phrase because um, uh, those who appear least important here in the eyes of men, are still going to be used of God. Wow. I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. Verse 19, and I will display wonders in the sky above and the signs on the earth below, blood, fire, and vapors of smoke. And the sun will turn into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord's comes. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, if that stuff has happened, you better be calling on the name of the Lord because you don't got much time left. Praise God. All right. So this was the Jewish feast of Pentecost. 
and Jesus had ascended into heaven. And this outpouring had taken place uh, that Holy Spirit had done that has never happened before in the history of humanity. Something new has come forth, and we need to know it has never ceased. That's real important we get that. This is not just something to fill the pages of history. This has never ceased. We got to get that. And due to the Holy Spirit's outpouring again in such a great way at the turn of the 20th century, we have come now to live in a global movement of the Spirit of God all across this earth. He has all the answers to all the world's desperate problems and needs. It's just that apparent. He does. Will we listen? Further, we see here that the gifts of the Holy Spirit does not die out in the first century after the last apostle passes away. Some churches do teach that, and quite incorrectly. The Holy Spirit activity has always been here from century to century. Uh, sometimes in the uh, Middle Ages, it was down to a trickle. But by the time the Renaissance started, uh, uh, definitely after the 1100s, uh, it started to crop up again. Tell them we'll be home in a minute. Okay, and then it would be revived again in the 20th century, just as it was in the first century. So when we read this, these things in Acts, and we're looking at, that was only one small area where this started. Today, it's global. I mean, um, one brother in the Lord forgot his name. He was a missionary in Mexico in the mountains down there. Oh, forgot his name. Um, he had known Dr. Michael Brown's ministry, and he said, Mike, they raise the dead here like it's no big deal. Wow. Wow. He was just flabbergasted how the Spirit of God works in certain parts of the globe that we don't see from day to day. I mean, the Spirit of God is so active out there on planet Earth, we don't have a clue on how intense it is at times. Wow. Do it here, Lord. Wow. So here we have in, in the Acts chapter uh, 2 here is the church's model of how Holy Spirit started in his church. It is his church in the first century. Now, you have to think for a second. Okay, the Spirit of God has just invaded humanity <laughs> in a big, big way. Scriptures in the Old Testament are now coming to pass before their eyes. Satan is not going to like this. So, how would Satan stop the flow of the Holy Spirit in the church? Well, he can't. But Scripture does tell us he's a liar and a deceiver. That we know. So what does he do quite cleverly? One thing he does is to deceive the believers in the years to come after this to pursue a gospel of works instead of faith. To pursue a Christian spiritual life based on the intellect and traditions rather than depending on Holy Spirit for everything. We will never find God with our rational mind. We will never find God with our intellect. If that would be true, only the very smart ones can know God. And the truth is, they don't really know Him at all, do they? No, people with simple faith find Him quite easily. And uh, the, even the Lord tells us that, uh, that, that, about the poor being rich in faith here. So, um, so that's an important issue here. Uh, they want to depend more on their traditions, just like the Pharisees did, rather than the spirit of the living God. So the enemy, the evil one, he brings false teachings into the church. Those are his own lies. So over the centuries then, after the first century, following this great outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the church grew ritualistic. The church grew rational-minded, and at times very cold to the gifts of Holy Spirit. Satan wanted to stop the flow of God, stop the flow of God's power against him, which shows that his dominion of darkness is defeated. So religion brings that opportunity. And need to remember that religion is not a good word. Religion is men's attempt to reach God. Christianity, he's reached down to us. And actually the word religion is re, uh, re-religio, or whatever it is from Latin. It means to go back to bondage in English. Wow, isn't that correct? Men's religions will put you in bondage. They will rob you of faith. They will rob you of the power of God. They will rob you of what God has to offer. 
I don't want men's religion. If you want to cuss at me, call me religious. You just cussed at me. Call me a believer. T tell me I, I walk in faith. I'll kiss you. Right? We want to be uh, men and women of the Spirit, not religious people. Oh, aren't they just religious? Oh, you just insulted me. No, I'm not. I don't want men's religions. I want what's of the Spirit of God as best as I possibly can. And uh, I want to be that kind of a believer. Jesus tells us here in Matthew chapter 15, verse 6, in the second part of the verse, out of the NIV Bible, he says, Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your traditions. That is a dirty piggy no-no. When we take our traditions higher in value than the word of God, we nullify the word of God. Certainly Martin Luther ran up against that when he tried to, what well, he thought he was trying to improve the Roman Catholic Church in his day. And they quickly, you know, had the attitude of, who are you, you old fat German monk telling us what to do? And of course, quite rejected, which was his shock because he believed in what they were doing and wanted to make them better. And he quickly found out they don't want you because their tradition just told you you're not welcomed when you try to bring us the truth of the Word of God. Because they came to a point where the early reformers, they almost got a point to agree with Catholicism until Catholicism said, but it's with also the tradition of the elders. That's where they, we part company. We don't want to add your traditions, add it to the Word of God. And there became the great departure there theologically for them. So we don't want to be in a place where our men's traditions nullify the Word of God. Jesus tells us that quite clearly. He says that to the Pharisees. Therefore, we don't want that pharisaical spirit in the body of Christ. So prior to the 20th century, uh, in the latter 1800s, men and women were very hungry for the power of God to move abundantly, as it did in the first century. And in the early 1900s, again, there was a mighty outpouring of the Holy Spirit that has not stopped to the day we live in. So, first let's take a look at this a little bit in history and lead, find out how we ever got up to this desire for more of the Holy Spirit that happened back prior to 1900. Uh, one important thing to always remember, it would be a wrong conclusion to say that the Holy Spirit's activity here uh, ended with the death of the last apostles. Some churches do teach that. That is absolutely in error just by basic historical fact. So when we examine the written accounts that have happened over the centuries in the Christian church, we find many examples uh, uh, in nearly every century of Holy Spirit being poured out as in the first century. I want to read some from to you. Uh, when I taught the original course, I put this handout together. It comes from two books. Both of them are published by the Assemblies of God. It's called, What Meaneth This?, by Carl Brombach, and the other one called The Holy Spirit by L.T. Holdcroft. And uh, they, they did research on uh, what has been written historically over the centuries about the Holy Spirit. What did our church fathers or those in Christianity say over the centuries about Holy Spirit? I'd like to know. Uh, well, first of all, it's on two different books here. Augustine, uh, 354 to 430 B A.D. Augustine's a good guy. Um, he is one of the few uh, important people that have affected Christianity to the day we live in. Obviously, the Apostle Paul, without a doubt. After him would come Augustine and Martin Luther, John Calvin, and just a couple others that have affected the world we live in today as believers. Augustine's a good guy. Augustine wrote, and this is probably around 400 AD, we still do what the apostles did when they laid hands on the Samaritans, calling down the Holy Spirit and laying hands on them. It is expected that converts should speak with new tongues. That's not the first century. That's the fourth century. And he's making a statement like that, an eyewitness account. Um, from about the fourth century to about 1100 AD, the Holy Spirit's movement is a trickle. As best as we know, because not a lot was written down. There's very few written in those days uh, to have reference to. Um, let me see here. Around 390 AD, Marcarius, he implied that he expects that the gifts of the Spirit to be manifested in the believers. He expects it. 
Uh, there's other believers that have said other things in those centuries. By the time we get to about the 1100s, we're coming a little bit out of the dark ages, and a lot of revivals are starting to happen, far too numerous to mention tonight. Uh, here we're doing historical reading. Uh, the Voldensians and the Albigens uh, were some of them. Uh, even the Encyclopedia Britannica notes them as speaking in tongues. And that's about the 13th century, 12th century AD. Um, in the 1400s, Vincent Furrier said, many others uh, say that this saint was honored with the gift of tongues. So they're noticing this in their writings coming right out of the Dark Ages. Uh, let's see here. There was a guy in the 1100s, I'm sorry, a lady, Hildegard of Benigen in the 1100s, whose habit was to sing in tongues. She was singing tongues, and people would notice it. Uh, Gregory the Posamus um, was teaching on, in the 1200s, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Wow. Uh, something you're not going to find in history books. Um, let me see here. Uh, Thomas Walsh, in his diary in the 1700s, now, they use a different vocabulary than we use today. He said in his diary, This morning the Lord gave me a language that I knew nothing of, raising my soul to him in a wondrous manner. He spoke in tongues. Um, there was a Quaker, C.W.C. Brathwaite, and he wrote down, um, We received often, this is in now in the what? 1700s? Um, we received often the pouring out of the Spirit upon us. Our hearts were glad, our tongues were loosed, and our mouths were open, and we spake with new tongues as the Lord gave us utterance. So to say this thing stopped in the first century, why do we have so many other centuries of testimonies that people write in their diaries and eyewitnesses see of people speaking with other tongues? Um, oh, I missed the whole section here. Um, hip, it's not hippo. Hippolotamus, I guess. One, <laughs> mother called him Hippolotamus. Okay. 170 AD to 235 AD. Um, they were practicing laying on of hands for people to be healed. Uh, Novotion, uh, powers of healing with extraordinary works. And that's the 200s. Uh, this testimony after testimony uh, in centuries past of people experiencing the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So it is a wrong assumption to say that didn't happen beyond the first century. Then why do we have so many testimonies over the centuries of believers experiencing that? And those are only a few that were written. How many more things were probably happening that were never written down? So anyway, as the centuries moved on, here's my point, there became a hunger uh, for more and more people to ha want more and more of Holy Spirit. And what we need to recognize is when that outpouring of the Holy Spirit happened in uh, 1901, it wasn't just a sudden thing necessarily. It was a progressive thing. That there had been a progressive hunger for more and more of the Holy Spirit, and it happened to be matched with God's prophetic time clock. There were many devoted groups of peoples, probably starting in the latter 1600s, called Lutheran Pious, into the 1700s with John Wesley, founder of Methodism, and a growing hunger for more of Holy Spirit was happening. By the time he got to the 1800s, Methodists, who were also known as Wesleyans, were seeking after what was called the second experience. Has anybody ever heard that before? Okay, must have been the other group. All right, that, that's what they called it, the second experience. We call it baptism in the Holy Spirit. They called it the second experience. Others said there is no second experience. They said, oh, yes, there is. And there's this big controversy back then. And um, so there's intensity grew uh, in this um, pre-1900s of many devoted Christians seeking out Holy Spirit. Groups far too numerous, too numerous for us to mention tonight. Um, if you ever hear of the expression, you might hear the expression of Baptist Bible camps, Wesleyan Bible camps in the latter 1800s. Um, a lot of people don't realize, but when you go up to uh, uh, Ocean Grove uh, with the great 
uh, cathedral there, that at one time was a, was a Wesleyan Methodist movement that goes back to the 1800s, where people used to have just camp. They go to camp, and they would day after day hear Bible teachings in camp, and they would pray day after day after day, uh, and fast day after day after day. Amazing. The devotion they have. I mean, like, come on, to, to, get, to get in the wagon and go off to this place where all you're going to do is pray, read the Word of God, speak the Word of God, hear the Word of God, and fast. I think you've got to be pretty serious. This is not the average person. What else are you going to do? That's all we're going to do. Oh, well, tell me all about it when you come back. Obviously, you had to be a pretty serious person. And these people were intensely serious Intent, I think far more than we are today, intensely serious at these Baptist and Wesleyan uh, Bible camps that they would go to. Um, so, uh, this great intensity grew prior to 1900, and many devoted Christians were pursuing this. Now, what did these pre-Pentecostals have in common? Ah, that's what we want to clue in on. If you're writing that down, that's something you want to remember. That's pretty easy. Um, number one is a love for the Word of God. Those Bibles were worn out. They didn't have a collection of Bibles. They had Bibles that wore out and they had to get more of them because they wore them out. They were worn out. They had a love for the Word of God. The second thing was they had holy living. That is something the body of Christ today has got to wake up to, because it lives far from holy. It's very much in love with this world age. And I'm uh, not judging them, but they are. Overall in America especially, they're very much in love with this world age. They were not. They were totally devoted to what's of the Lord and holy living. Obviously, these people didn't drink, they didn't gamble, uh, they lived holy uh, lives when it came to sexuality, um, they, didn't, they didn't, didn't involve with the, with the uh, sin of their day, whatever the culture of their day was, they were far away from that. They lived holy before the Lord. They were characterized by that. They were probably ostracized for living holy lives because it was that noticeable. Another thing they had in common was exuberant worship. These people would be worship fanatics. Today we have very vibrant music that probably started, eh, well, eh, probably since the turn of the century, especially from the 30s on, very vibrant Christian music. But back in those days, there was so intensity, people would actually faint because they were so involved in worship. I mean, they would like overwhelmingly involved in worship. Another thing they had was an evangelistic zeal. These people were witnessing machines. Not because they were trying to earn brownie points with God. They wanted to be. If I have found the good news in Christ, everyone must know my good news that I have. To a point where people would just hit them or get in the fist fights with them to get them off them. They were that disliked. They had an incredible evangelistic zeal. And the other thing they had was the belief that Holy Spirit wanted to bring back a Acts chapter 2 experience to the church. And they believed that happening would be a sign of the last days before the Lord's return. How about that? They believed that because of the Joel scripture. They believed that was going to be a sign the Lord is returning very soon. Wow. So, um, when we look back, what do you have here? You, we see that Holy Spirit found people who were serious and wanted nothing more than His presence. That's really when you analyze this, what you have. And you know, Holy Spirit today is still looking for people who are serious and want nothing more than His presence. And the rest of the Christian church thinks they're kooks, just like they were in the 1800s. There used to be an old saying, a fanatic is somebody who loves Jesus more than you do. Ah, makes you think a lot. Oh Lord, where am I? Makes you think a lot. But yeah, that's what these people were like prior to the Holy Spirit outpouring happening. It didn't just go poof, here's Holy Spirit. Rather, they were calling on heaven uh, with great uh, agony, pulling on heaven for the Spirit of God to be poured out. 
And some of them in their lifetimes didn't see it. And this built and built and built. Anyway, at this time, um, in September of 1900, a man named Charles Parham started a Bible school in Topeka, Kansas to study out in the Bible holiness theology. So in those days, I, well, there's different ways to do this. When they started this Bible school, all right, let's all get together and study the Word of God and factually find out what holiness is about, basically, and how we can live holy. Again, they're all a result of that group that wants more of God. Common sense. You start a Bible school then about holiness. Okay, so that, that was the whole deal. Look at this odd date on January 1, 1901. How about that? January 1. On they, they didn't take the day off. Hey, it's New Year's. No. On January 1, 1901, Parham and 34 students broke out speaking in tongues. At that Bible school, a woman spoke in tongues whose name was Agnes Osman. And after her, 18 students followed. This has become known as to the Topeka Revival. Very interesting here to make a note. Uh, whenever God has great revivals, women are always at the center of it. Because they've been oppressed for centuries. Satan hates women. That's a whole separate teaching. He hates women. What a passion. Because when you go back to Genesis chapter 3, the Messiah is prophesied to come as seed of a woman, which basically and it says he's going to crush your head. So basically, Satan has got to stop this Messiah from coming, which he couldn't stop, because, and it would be born of a woman. So he hates women with a passion. And all through the centuries, women have been greatly, greatly oppressed and are to this very day. All through the centuries, women have been nothing but property. All through the centuries, they've been sexually exploited and are today. Uh, did you know most people in mental hospitals today are women? That's an attack. We can go on and on with this, how the enemy has tried to degrade women. With men, you get war. With women, you get peace. Come on. What's wrong with this picture? Uh, uh, so there's been an incredible oppression against women. Jesus has been the great liberator of women and the Christian church. When you see the things Jesus said and who he said them to and what he did and what was happening in the first century, that is not the freedom women had to live with. I mean, Paul even talked about uh, the, uh, uh, the church that is in her house. What? Why would you even mention her name? That Jesus is the great liberator where there is no preference of male or female, but who we are in the spirit in Christ. There's an equality in Christ. Men are not superior to women. Uh, thank God they're not. And thank God women aren't superior to men. They're, they're different and we want the difference. And anyway, so uh, you'll find that just about every revival, women are at the center of it when they have the freedom to be used of God. So that is something the Christian church has to learn and is getting better at to always promote. For example, do you remember the Booth's Salvation Army? Right? John, uh, John Booth, is John Booth or General Booth? I forgot his first name. Anyway, General Booth and his wife, the Salvation Army, that was an army of women who brought the children out of child prostitution in London, out of horrible uh, uh, conditions of poverty and sickness, and, and, and elevated them to a, to a normal life. That was women that did that. They were an army of women. Amazing. The men came later. Uh, so, um, not unlikely here that the first great outpouring of the Holy Spirit involves women at the forefront. That was all free. It's not part of the teaching. I just thought I'd mention it. Okay, so anyway, there was a student that attended this school, and his name was William Joseph Seymour. Big name. And he took this yearning for the baptism in the Holy Spirit to Los Angeles, California. And that was called the latter rain outpouring. Okay, Pastor Seymour was affectionately known as a one-eyed black preacher who walked with a limp. I like that. You know why? Because he's unimpressive in the, in the uh, eyes of the religious mainstream. There was, this guy was nothing to look at 
by the mainstream society. He was nothing to look at. And God there, as we learn from his life, uses nobodies and makes somebodies out of them. We always got to remember that. God takes nobodies and makes somebodies out of them all the time. He likes that. Because so the men don't, and then the religious system of the day doesn't have, uh, can take the credit for it. So anyway, Pastor Seymour, he goes to Los Angeles, and he's received at the home of Richard and Ruth Asbury, A-S-B-E-R-R-Y. It later is called the Bonnie Bray House, B-R-A-Y. Now, I never thought in my life I would ever be there, but I was there. <laughs> Not in 1901. I was at a, at a, at a uh, ministry conference in L.A., and they were saying, you know, there's been many revivals in this area. The Azusa Street Revival of the Outpouring Holy Spirit was here. And we're like, well, yeah. Would you like to go there on the afternoon sometime? I'm like, what? Oh, the house is still there. It's owned by a particular church, and they allow tours of it. And actually, people go there to pray. What? <laughs> yeah. So a whole group of us went to the Bonnie Bray House. It's a nondescript little road in Los Angeles. Uh, the house was built turn of the century. It's not that big of a house. And in their living room, which is not very big, is where this outpouring took place. And I'll tell you, it was a group of maybe 10 of us. As soon as we walked into the room, you could feel the presence of the Holy Spirit. It was amazing. I mean, amazing. People were falling on their, on their knees in tears. I mean, the Holy Spirit was just there. It, it was like, I couldn't believe what I was experiencing. The original piano was there that they had in 1900, where uh, the lady who was playing the piano, had never learned how to play piano. She would just sat there and the Lord would just use her to start to play songs, hymns. Amazing. And they had a little tiny picture of Daddy Seymour on the wall. And I was like, this is where it all started. Absolutely amazing. I was actually there uh, twice. So anyway, obviously this started attracting a lot of people. And due to the large crowds of people, they have this like wraparound veranda porch. It collapsed and they all hit the ground. So they obviously, some of them, you know, got banged up. So uh, they realized we got to move. There's too many people. So after the porch collapsed, they went public and they went to 312 Azusa Street in Los Angeles. And I was there too. I went to Azusa Street. Today it's a Japanese cultural center. Which is strange. Uh, the entire area is brick parking lot. It's amazing. But this little tiny section is a bronze plaque. I should have brought a slide. I took a picture of it. It's a bronze plaque on the ground, and here is the birth of Pentecostalism in the 20th century. And I think where the bronze plaque was was the actual place of where the building sat. Uh, pretty wild. And uh, the, the original building was 40 by 60 feet in size. It was a wood building. It was like a barn, I think, pretty much. It could seat three to 500 people, uh, which is a lot of people in a small place like that. Now, the real glory years were from 1906 to 1909. But from that small building, it's quickly spread around the whole globe. And um, besides the baptism in the Holy Spirit, there's a return to prophecy, miracles, healings, a general display of the power of God. And yes, they acted drunk, just like on the days of Pentecost. And they were laughed at just like the days of Pentecost. And what were they called? Holy rollers. Why? Because they rolled around on the floor uh, in, in the hay. And they were called holy rollers because of that. That's where the word comes from, to make fun of them. How about that? I remember when I was a real little kid, apparently we had relatives that were uh, born again, and I never knew it at the time. And my grandfather kept making fun of them. Ah, they belong to that holy roller church. I had no idea what he was talking about. But now, of course, I understand. Um, so that's absolutely amazing. Of course, that building is long gone. Uh, it did not uh, last long. Uh, and sadly enough, regarding the revival, uh, how it ended is bizarre. Uh, it ended, it went through the teens. I don't remember how far, 1915 or before 1915, but really bizarre. Uh, Daddy Seymour got married. And when he got married, his secretary, who was a woman, was outrageously jealous. Apparently, she was in love with him. And he obviously had no interest. 
And what she did was, out of jealousy, she stole his mailing list. Now, you got to remember, there's no internet. There's no uh, telephones. This is even before phones. So if you had to contact anybody, it's through the mail. So mailing lists were a big deal. Well, she stole his mailing list and took off, and they never found her. So he had no way to get in contact with all the hundreds and hundreds of people from all over the United States and the world that were coming. So they just assumed it's over. We never hear from the guy anymore. And that's how it stopped. Absolutely amazing. Supposedly he died very brokenhearted in the early 1920s. How about that? Isn't that wild? Uh, anyway, um, but, you know, one thing we see here is that no one man can take credit for what the Spirit of God was doing. And that's really good news. No one man could take credit for what the Holy Spirit was doing across the planet. Uh, God just used people. And that, 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 that's good news for you and me. Amen? So, great Pentecostal denominations were birthed from these meetings. It's important to remember that this was a multiracial experience where whites and blacks especially were together. It was the whites that messed it up. They quickly brought in racism. Blacks didn't like being treated the way they were treated, and they had to start their own Pentecostal denominations. That's wrong. It was the whites that messed it up. It was not how it started. It was a totally integrated, uh, especially between white and black folks together, which obviously tremendously upset the white racists at that time. Um, So that's very sad. Had that had a breakup into racial groups. It was never meant for that. It was a multiracial group, and that's the way it was supposed to be. Anyway, after Azusa Street's all over, the outpouring of this Holy Spirit ministry of uh, Pastor Seymour, uh, it began a new spiritual Christian movement in the 20th century. And it developed a new theology, right? A new theology had to be written for, for this new movement. What do we believe? What's this all about? What does this new movement believe and teach? What do they practice? Those are important questions. And it's also important to remember here, when movements like this start, uh, they're not that mature. Uh, They grow up like a newborn baby growing up. A baby hopefully learns by experience. These theologies have to learn by experience. It learns through growing pains. As it stretches forth, it learns from its errors. The new Pentecostal movement had a lot of errors over the years, and they had to be corrected. There were mistakes uh, as they were learning their doctrine that had to be uh, corrected about it. Uh, The years prior to 1930s had a lot of controversy, a lot of wrong teaching. Uh, People of that movement disagreed with each other. There were divisions. There were various issues. Boy, the flesh comes in and tries to mess things up. Well, it did. Uh, and they're far too numerous to mention tonight. However, much of what is taught today in the body of Christ got its genesis back then. That's the beginning of it. And the Pentecostals were looked at as kooks. They were rejected by mainline Protestant theology. But no one could refute the healings the miracles, the signs, the wonders, the profoundly changed lives. There were people walking in there as drunks, and they left totally free from alcohol. These were supernatural deliverances taking place, and no one could refute that. What does this mean? Just like in the first century. Yet we see here, as I mentioned before, Holy Spirit's revelation about the Word of God, it comes gradual. And since the 1930s, It continues to grow, and further revelation has been birthed and brought forth since the original Azusa revival. Over the years, there's been more revivals that have taken place. In the 1950s, there was a great healing revival across America. Uh, People like Oral Roberts came to prominence. In the 1960s, the Pentecostal experience spread out to mainline denominations known as the Charismatic Renewal. Now, that's extremely, extremely important. Concerning the worldwide outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the most important spiritual revolution that has taken place since the Reformation is the charismatic renewal of the 1960s. I just said a lot right there. What? Yes, 
the most important thing that has happened in Christianity since Martin Luther and the Reformation was the charismatic renewal. Wow. Because it affected all the mainline denominational churches. Now, a little quick explanation here for a minute. There's a difference technically between Pentecostalism and uh, charismatic Christianity. Pentecostalism tends to refer to the denominations that came out of that early revival of the 1900s. Assemblies of God, Church of God in Christ, etc., etc. The charismatics tend to refer to the work of the Holy Spirit in mainline denominational churches since 1960. Uh, they kind of put the date... I forgot when it was, when uh, Dennis, um, help me remember the name, Dennis, Dennis, ah, I just went blank, Dennis, Pastor Dennis, he was a Lutheran pastor, oh, I got, lost the name, Pastor Dennis, a Lutheran pastor, he gets up to his congregation one Sunday morning and confesses, I speak in tongues. First of all, they probably didn't know what in the world he was talking about. Bennett, Dennis Bennett, Dennis and Rita Bennett. The Holy Spirit and You. Still a classic book. Holy Spirit and You. Dennis, they, bought, they wrote it together. Anyway, uh, when Dennis Bennett made that confession to his congregation publicly, that's when they date the beginning of the charismatic renewal. When a mainline denominational pastor said, hey, I speak in tongues. And they went, what? We don't even believe in that. And of course. So anyway, um, there's a lot of differences between the two. We can't do that tonight. Uh, the, uh, for Pentecostals, they tend to have an Arminius theology. Charismatics tend to have a Calvinist theology. Arminius mean they put a great emphasis on your personal free will. Calvinists put a great emphasis on the sovereign power of God. So a little bit difference there in beliefs, but it's the charismatic renewal that has affected the world even greater. What a statement to make. Even greater than the Pentecostal outpouring of 1901. Our own church is a product of the charismatic renewal, not Pentecostalism. Um, so, what are the biggies in church history? You had the first century Book of Acts, right? You had the Protestant Reformation of the 15 and 1600s. And you had the charismatic renewal from 1960 to 1977. Wow. Those are the big earth-shattering changes in Christianity that has taken place. Those three events. We cannot emphasize the enough how serious the charismatic renewal is. So, in moving along here, in the 1970s and 80s, there was a great outpouring of a biblical teaching renewal. Many great Bible teachers have just showed up and brought light to the Word of God as it was never taught before. In the 1980s, there was a great renewal in the prophetic. All over the globe, mainline denominational churches started to incorporate what we call Pentecostal truth into their church beliefs. You had Baptists in the 1980s speaking in tongues saying, we have no intention not to be Baptists. Don't call us Pentecostals. But you speak in tongues. Yeah, that's right. We're going to stay that way. Wow, that's amazing. Pat Robertson, right? Right? He was a Baptist, not a Pentecostal. And he wants to let you know he was a Baptist. Wow, uh, amazing. Joel Osteen's father um, was originally uh, a Baptist, and he said, when you get a Baptist filled with the Holy Spirit, you got stability. A very famous saying of his, which is true. Then when the 1990s come along, we have a great apostolic renewal that is existing to this day. And even beyond the 90s, there have been other renewals within renewals, too numerous to mention tonight. So in summary here tonight, why did all this happen? There's really three main reasons. First of all, Father God always intended His church to communicate His love through the gospel, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Always meant for that. Second, number two, Holy Spirit found people who were hungry for Him. And the amazing good news is it hasn't changed to this day. Who will just believe and be used of God? I'm paraphrasing Leonard Ravenhill, great evangelist. Who will just believe and be used of God? Wow. And third point, it is a major sign of the end times. One of the clear keys that we are living in last days. That's a few things to mention before we close here. 
Globally, this is so hard to say, globally there's estimated 644 million Pentecostal Christians. Wow. There are over 700 denominational groups globally and thousands of independent Pentecostal churches, charismatic churches. When you incorporate legally, there's only two ways to go. You either incorporate as a denomination or as an independent non-denominational church. We're incorporated as an independent non-denominational church. Uh, Pastor Walt used to like to use the word interdenominational, meaning that all churches are welcome, which I, I agree. But legally, you're either a denomination or you're not. We're, we're incorporated as an independent, non-denominational, charismatic church. Uh, in America, there's over 68 million Christians who hold the Pentecostal beliefs. That doesn't mean they would call themselves Pentecostals. Maybe they might call themselves Baptists. But they hold the Pentecostal beliefs. It is the fastest growing religious movement in the world in less than 120 years. And most of them, I'd say 99%, but most of them all believe we are in end times. How about that? That belief has never stopped. Not 100% of them do, but most of them, at least 98, 99% do that. So one last word for tonight here. People who say and teach that the Holy Spirit's first century outpouring of the charismata has ceased, do not recognize the movement of the Holy Spirit in our day and do not know the hand of God for what he's doing in the world today. I don't know about you, but I'm sure glad I'm part of it. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for Holy Spirit. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are continuing to pour out your Spirit in our lives. Oh, continue to do so today. May we be such a people that are hungry for you and not satisfied with yesterday's success, yesterday's outpouring, but a fruit freshness every day. Holy Spirit, what would you do with people who actually believe you? What would you do? Certain few people turned an entire world upside down for you because they actually believed you. Holy Spirit, what would you have for us in our personal lives, in the gifts and callings that you have for us, in the individual uh, destinies that you have for the people here? I would never presume what they are. You alone know what they are. May we live them out. Holy Spirit, may we live out the destiny you have for us. Use us in our day, Holy Spirit. Fill us, Lord God, in a way that we've never been filled before, with a daily infilling of your Spirit that we would crave and want more of you each day. We welcome you, Holy Spirit, in our personal lives. We welcome you, Holy Spirit, uh, here at the Church of Grace and Peace. Uh, and being that this is still the Hebrew month of Cheshvan, a month of spiritual new beginnings, Oh, Lord, may there be spiritual new beginnings in me and everyone here individually at the Church of Grace and Peace, Father God. Give us new spiritual beginnings, Father, beyond what we could have ever thought possible. Father, God, have your way in us and through us by Holy Spirit. We welcome you to have your way. And we thank you that the gates of hell cannot stop you. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Can you say amen? Amen. 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 Praise the Lord.